I am Plata on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. David Pevsner bears all, literally, in his new book, Damn Shame, a memoir of desire, defiance, and show tunes. In his over 40-year career in entertainment, Mr. Pevsner, who joins me now, has acted on Broadway, off-Broadway, in film and television. He also has worked in the sex trade as a male escort, and over the last several years has gained an international fan base through his blog of erotic and nude photography that celebrate his 62-year-old body. It wasn't always like this for David. As he writes in the book, he was an awkward, slight, shy child, ashamed of his body and sexuality. He chronicles his discovery of sex and his identity, not to mention his creativity in this book. It's an often entertaining read with humor and frankness. It is also defiant in how it stresses the message of anti-ageism, anti-shame, and pro-nudity. David Pevsner is an actor based in Los Angeles who is also a writer and model. His film and television appearances are myriad, including uh, Silicon Valley, NCIS, I'm Dying Up Here, Modern Family, Grey's Anatomy, and Law & Order LA, among many others. He also starred in the popular web series Old Dogs and New Tricks. His work as a songwriter has been featured in the global hit show Naked Boys Singing, his album Most Versatile, and one-man shows including musical comedy horror. His Instagram is at dpevs. This new book is published by Random House. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program David Pevsner. Mr. Pevsner, good morning. Good morning. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Um, the title, Damn Shame, it's, it's, such, it's such a great title because it, it can mean different things over the course of your life, um, yeah. over the, the course of the book even. Um, it takes on new meaning. The, the initial shame, though, of growing up, about your body, about your sexuality, where do you think that comes from? I mean, one would assume that, that one's upbringing probably breeds a lot of that. D- does it? Well, I mean, in a certain respect, um, you know, I tell the story about my sisters kind of making fun of me every time I took my shirt off at the pool, you know, woo, 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 you know, they would yeah. point and laugh at me. Uh, but that, you know, that's not all it was. We were just not a family that talked about this kind of stuff. And, you know, I, my parents were the best and my sisters are the best. But that was just not something, you know, I was the one boy in, uh, with two girls. And it just, I didn't, you know, I didn't ever walk around the house in you know shirtless i was just ashamed of it i didn't i didn't feel like um i could do it and just you know it's almost hard to explain because you know what what is shame and where does it come from yes part of it was growing up part of it was um at home but a lot of it was at school and and you know the gym and gym class and the jcc pool and the showers and there's just a lot of shame and embarrassment surrounding my body, and um, it took me, you know, years and years and years to deal with it. Um, yeah, what, what was it uh, of the era then, perhaps? Well, most certainly, certainly. You know, I was I was born in '58 and raised in the '60s, and the early part of the '60s before there was any kind of real sexual revolution, and everything, including what was on television, which I watched. You know, I make a joke, I watched 25 hours of TV a day, because <laughs> I really did. And, you know, I never saw anything sexual, especially between men. Um, even though I didn't know I was for sure that I was gay, I knew there was something different about me. So, um, you know, I, I just didn't understand what sex was. I didn't understand, um, you know, I would look at, at, at TV stars with their shirts off, and I would just drool. Like I talk about Brian Kelly from Flipper and 
James Darren from the Time Tunnel, and I would just, you know, look at them, and, and I could feel my heart just pounding so deeply, and I didn't really understand why, because according to what was on TV, they weren't supposed to be men. You know, I was supposed to be, like, attracted to Stephanie Powers and, you know, all the, the 60s TV people that I loved, but it was the men who did it for me. Mm. And you can't help but question yourself and and feel shame when you don't understand why that is so different from everybody else and thinking you're the only one. Because I didn't know anybody at school who felt the way that I did. Certainly not at all. So. The, the thing about your book, Damn Shame, that, that, that makes it um, as uh, compelling as, as it does is it's a, it's a marvelous um, uh, chronicle of this journey that you take from from that which you just talked about, you know, the, the, the you. upbringing through to where we are today and, and where we are today. We'll, we'll talk about that in, in, as we as we continue our conversation. But mm-hmm. um, you, you mentioned television. Um, uh, spending a lot of time watching TV, you were a fan of the Brady Bunch, a sequence in the book where you're, I guess it was a, uh, a weekly thing uh, between the five of you, the, the family going out for dinner. At the um, deli, yeah. Yeah, and then... Um, the the pain that you describe in terms of, of wanting to get it over with so you can get home to watch the Brady Bunch, mm-hmm. um, it says a lot about how kids feel about te- t- television. Um, not, maybe not today because we can watch TV when we want. But um, exactly, I grew up but in the not eight- then. Yeah, I grew up in the eighties, and you know, I I, I felt uh, the same way about certain programs and and you know certain things. And you that had have. the VCR. That's you true. Know. Yeah. But, but we I didn't never have t- that at all. I didn't if have you t- weren't home, you didn't watch it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, what what um, what part of of um, do you think television played in your idea of the arts? Because you, you're someone who works in in film and television uh, now. Theater. Yeah, yeah, theater as well. I'm, uh, you're probably more known for for your work in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What um, do you think TV plays a part in in, in shaping how 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 your idea of what art is, perhaps even? Do you think it's, it's played a part in that sense, eh? Gigantic. I always say, I wonder if I never turned on a television set, what, <laughs> you know, where I would be today. Um, because I didn't go to the theater. You know, we went a few times when I was a kid, but not until I was, you know, a little older. And films, you know, I had to have my parents take me to them. Mm. So the TV, I had access to on my own. And as long as I did my homework, I could watch all the TV that I wanted. And TV, you know, I always say that my sense of humor was developed because of Lucy and Bugs Bunny. Like, they taught me to be funny. And then watching, you know, um, the Brady Bunch and and all the sitcoms that I used to watch, I just looked at those actors and just went, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to, like, I want to be Greg Brady or, you know, I I, I would always look at the shows and not just watch them. I would kind of be like, I want to be that character. I want to be that character. And it really spurred on the, um, not so much the art in me, but just the desire to play someone else, Mm. you know. Um, And and yet also identify, like the ones I identified with the most were the ones that I wanted to, you know, to be with. So, So if it was like, you know, a kid who was falling in love with somebody, I was such a little romantic, even though I was only like seven years old. Um, I would go, that's, I want to be in that. I want to play that part. You know, or when I would see something like Flipper. I talk about Flipper, about Brian Kelly in the book, because he was really my first kind of sexual icon that I didn't know was sexual. Mm. But, you know, he had two sons in, in the show. 
and I wanted to be I wanted to be his son. I wanted to drive around on that boat with him when he wasn't wearing a shirt. I wanted to have a dolphin as a friend. You know, um, I really always put myself into what I was watching. So it went beyond just sitting and you know placidly looking at the television set. Yeah, um, it really helped my fantasy life and. And I loved musical movies when they were on TV, like, you know, Wizard of Oz and stuff like that. And I loved to sing. And the first time I saw Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl was like, well, well, that's how it's done, apparently. <laughs> you know? How to make it um, through show business, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I also thought, like, if I never, ever saw a Streisand film, would I have wanted to be a singer as much as I, as much as I became a singer and, and a, a musical writer? Yeah. Um, you know, there are just certain people and certain TV shows, films that did absolutely have a huge um, have a huge influence on my desire to be in this business. What is it to like? Be an artist. So, what is it like now, David, when you're working in television specifically, knowing that you're well, doing that, um, and and thinking back to to when all those hours that you spent in front of the tube, say, growing up. Um, is, is there a connection? Did you think? Did, um, did you feel something when when you're doing it? Say, um, it's funny because TV of everything that I do, TV is I shouldn't say this out loud, but it's my least favorite because you know I play a lot of doctors on TV, so there's a lot of kind of dry. You're going to die, or you're going you know, <laughs> right, to. You've got yeah. colon cancer, whatever. Um, whereas in the theater and independent films, I've had much greater opportunities to play. You know, like I played a gay Ebenezer Scrooge in the movie Scrooge and Marley. And in the theater, I've had, you know, really great opportunities to play, you know, really meaty, chewy roles and singing and this and that. TV um, has not been my main source of either income or art, even though I do a lot of TV shows. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like Dr. Face. I have Dr. Face, and so that's what I get hired for. Uh, and it's funny because I used to go out for TV commercials, and in the book I talk a lot about how I used to torture my family by singing commercial jingles in the car <laughs> um, because I didn't even, more than I loved the TV shows, I loved the commercials and I loved singing them. So you would think as an adult I would like kill to be in TV commercials. Um, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're kind of, um, I, I don't think that that's, that's my milieu. And they're kind of a pain in the ass to audition for. I sh again, I shouldn't yeah. say it out loud. <laughs> but, um, you know, in, in L.A., when you have to go at 3.30 in the afternoon to go to Santa Monica to audition for a commercial, you're never getting out of Santa Monica at that hour. Mm, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, certainly if they come my way, happy to do it. And I have done some. But truly, I think about the theater and I think about independent film, and that's really where my heart lies. Yeah, that's what we uh, think of you as, those sort of media, if you will, as yeah. an artist, as we read the book, that, that yeah, you're a theater, uh, you're a theater guy. Um, yeah. and, and was that the intention when, when you left Skokie to go to Carnegie Mellon? No. Um, I, I, I mean, I did theater in high school, but mm -hmm. my dream always started with television, you know, because of all that TV watching. Yeah. And then at Carnegie, you know, there's, there, there were some difficult times at Carnegie, as I talk about yeah. in the book, having to do with my sexuality um, and how they uh, perceived it and the, the kind of control that they wanted to have on us gay boys to not be so gay, which was just horrible. Um, but once, but I did, I did acquire an appreciation for the theater and 
you know, that's really all we did. We didn't do any TV or film there. We never had a TV or film class at all, which was not good. You know, that was something that we should have had more training in. But I did acquire um, a lot of uh, uh, appreciation for the theater, for, for musicals, et cetera. And that's what I started doing when I came to New York. I kind of hit the ground running and just started doing mostly musicals for quite a long time. Well, when when most people go to university, they go there to, you know, um, n not say discover themselves, because I think they, they figure out by that time who they are or what they like. Um, so one would assume when you got there, when you got to Carnegie, that um, this was a, this was a time for you to say, sow your wild oats, if you will, and, and you know, do what you wanted to do. But it, it was still a very challenging time in terms of your identity, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, you say sow your wild oats. I sowed oats. They weren't too wild because I was too afraid and too ashamed to really kind of do what a lot of college kids do. They go and they go wild and they, yeah. you know, they do everything they want to do. That was not me. I kind of stuck my toe into, you know, I, I came out um, freshman year at Carnegie after one year at the University of Michigan where I was deep, deep, deep in the closet um, and very unhappy and hating the snow. Um, <laughs> But then at Carnegie freshman year, I was I, I had a boyfriend and I came out of the closet and that's where it started to kind of um, make sense to me about the direction that I was going as a person, my authenticity. However, I still couldn't, you know, I wasn't somebody who would go and sleep around with people and there was still a lot of shame attached to being gay even though I was out and I still didn't feel great about my body and... Uh, my looks, I just, you know, for, I always talk about being the skinny, ugly Jewish kid. And that's how I felt through, you know, all of that through, through most of college. So I, I did, you know, I stuck my toe in and I made little, I was out of the closet, and, but I made, in my attempts to really kind of fulfill who I am and, and celebrate who I am, I did not really do that at college as much as I'd hoped. So when you get to New York, after college, uh, you're mm -hmm. working in the theater and the sort. I mean, this is 40 years ago now. Uh, yeah. This is at the start of the AIDS pandemic. Um, yeah. What, what, I mean, what was it, I mean, there's a story that you tell in the book about people who, who just saw the movie um, Normal the, Heart, the Normal Heart and, and you're trying to tell these young people what it was like to live through that and whether that depiction was true or not. Um, yeah. how, how do you navigate, say, your, your your social life or your life itself is as, as everything else that's go, going around you at the time is happening. Well, it was tough. I mean, you know, you're just early on, and we really weren't sure how it was how it was being spread, and so you just had to be really, really careful. And even when we did have a better understanding of it, it was still kind of like, no, I'm going to. Some people it didn't stop, you know, and they were able to kind of continue without a lot of angst and they knew what they were doing but for me it still brought a lot of angst and so i would have loved to have been more of a run around and more of a sleep around and in the 80s uh, really i wasn't because i was just being too careful however i loved being in new york i loved you know i would go and do musicals out of town and i'd come back wait a few tables go out of town again i had you know really great friends i still you know i would connect sexually but not as much as i like to because I was still uh, kind of in a little bit of a low self-esteemy mood uh, mode um, but it was it was 
you know, it was a great time to be in New York because even through all the fear, we were like a brotherhood. We all kind of got through it together as much as we possibly could. And every time you would see a friend who was ill or you'd hear about someone who died, you'd just be like, okay, I just have to, you know, I have to live. I have to continue on. I can't let fear get me. Um, but it, it brought a lot of empathy, I think, to us as a community. And we took care of each other. Yeah. It was lovely yeah. in its way. Uh, I'm not a performer, at least not in front of a, an audience. Um, mm-hmm. That's what, what I enjoyed about the book as well, was when you describe what it's like to, to uh work in the theater and, and work yeah. in the arts. Um, what is it like, David, to get applause or, or, or a laugh from an audience? I mean, can you describe that for, for, for the layperson in terms of, of what that feels like? Well, more than applause, a laugh, getting a laugh from an audience is orgasmic. <laughs> it's, it's really great. I mean, there's just something about making people laugh, and it's live and in the moment. There's nothing better. I, I mean, it's almost hard to describe, but like if you're at a party and you tell a joke and they laugh at it, how does that make you feel? Yeah. Well, think about that with mm. like, you know, 400 people out there laughing. You know, it makes you feel great. It, and especially as an artist, it's not like you go for the laugh. You hope that what you're doing as you do it will, you know, you hope that they will laugh. Um, and sometimes, you know, you get in your head and that's when they stop laughing because you go for it. You know, you play to it too much. So it's a real fragile thing. Comedy is a very fragile thing. The theater is a very fragile thing because it's so in the moment and anything can happen that was different than yesterday. Mm. It's, it's, but that's, once you kind of give in to the fact that that's the way it is, that's the nature of it, and you don't try to control it too much, it's really thrilling. Did, I, however, yeah. was very judgmental through a lot of my early career where I was like, oh, I had a terrible show, or they didn't laugh. And it, uh-huh. I had a lot to learn about, you know, just do it, leave it, go home, do it again the next night, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> Stop being so much in your head. But when you're not and you're really in the moment and you're connecting with the actors and the other actors in the audience, oh, my God. It really is, it really is magic. Yeah. Well, do you do much teaching of acting, say? I've only done a few workshops over the years. Like sometimes when I was on tour, um, or if I was in a city, you know, and I was doing a regional theater job, sometimes they would like bring me over to a, a, a high school or something and I would do a workshop. And, um, so I haven't done any teaching on an ongoing basis. I did a little bit of uh, what I call moment to moment workshops for people who have to pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, when you're in a, in an office and you have to pitch things, to a more corporate thing, you know, a lot of people who are corporate are not used to speaking in front of people mm-hmm. and letting their personalities come out. So before I left New York, I did a bunch of that um, where these kind of corporate people who knew that they had to speak in front of people, I would just meet with them and we would talk about you know, their fear and we would try to get them to relax and use their personality and take their time and breathe, all the things you do as an actor, you know. And I found that I found that really um, I, I liked it. I, I liked the fact that it felt like it changed their lives a little bit. That they weren't used to doing it, they got used to doing it, and then they were able to do it in front of their boss or the CEO or whatever. It was neat. 
Yeah, there are a lot of great lessons in the book, and, and I kept thinking as I was finishing the book, because you, you do ask these questions near the end of the book about what the next act will be like, the third act mm-hmm. in your life. Um, work as a teacher, I think, I mean, the, the, would, would, would probably suit you quite well if, if, you know, if, if you're wondering what to do next. Well, you know what? I mean, I continue to act. I continue to write. Sure. I'm a yeah. personal organizer on the side. And I, but here's the thing. I would actually love to do more teaching. And I, I think kids are great because, you know, I had a really great theater teacher in grammar school. I mean, in high school. You know, he was so supportive, and he just kept us acting, you know, whatever. And his support was really important to me wanting to go on. I would love to be that for kids in high school, whatever, but here's the thing. So I, we haven't talked much about my erotic presence online, you know, mm. as my, uh, my photos and videos, mm-hmm. which to me, are, they're just another expression of myself as an artist and as a gay man. But that might get in the way of getting a job. There are a couple of times where people, I actually donated my personal organizing services to this um, educational organization because I love to do that where they, when they have like um, raffles, I'll, you know, and there were a couple of them that wouldn't accept it because they Googled me and they saw me naked on the internet and were like, we don't want your service. And I think that I might have an issue with certain, um, if I decided that I wanted to teach um, and I'm a kind of a good teacher. Might yeah. be an issue, and yeah. I don't think it should be. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a, another powerful thing in in the book that you talk about the the, the, the culture's attitude to towards nudity, towards sex, and yep. and especially when you talk about the, the the stigma of sex work in the book. Um, you, you know, we we realize just how uneasy people are when it comes to talking about it, or say casting down their notions about it. Um, yeah. In terms of, of sex work itself, um, yours is not a story where you were led into it because of abuse or, be, or being exploited, right? You went into this willingly and knowing what to do, I guess, right? Well, not knowing what to do, because that, that came with getting the job and kind of being a fish out of water. But I certainly, I mean, I went to the interview to become a male escort. Yeah. I had a friend who asked me to be a naked maid and help him out, and I was like, I want to do that. I was approached by a photographer who wanted me to pose naked for him, and I was like, I want to do that. So, yeah, every choice I've made when it comes to my erotic life has totally been because I wanted to do it. No one forced me. Um, it wasn't It wasn't for the money, although with OnlyFans, yes, I do make money, and it's uh-huh. very nice. But it's the expression of, of, you know, approaching this erotic stuff the way I do it um, is really why I do it. I love it. And no, there's been no arm turning or anything to make me do it. Uh, by the way, before we get into that, um, the, the um, because you do work in the theater, as, as we read in the book, um, yeah. and it was during, a, I guess, a, you were working in a production of, of South Pacific. When, when you started working out, I guess the, the, that was sort of the, the start of um, yes. this sort of second act in your life. Um how, how did working out change your life? I mean, it, it obviously changed your body. Um, did it yeah. change your mind in terms of, of um, I, I guess it did give you the confidence, didn't it, to, to, to get into all the things that, I mean, sex work itself, es- escorting, um, yeah. you know, the, it sort of led you to that, didn't it? It changed me 4,000%. Um, I became, I had always wanted, you know, when... 
the sexual icons that I that I kind of grew up with, the, the ones that attracted me, were more muscular. They had nice bodies, and I thought I will never be like that ever. And then on tour, when you have so much free time on your hands, because all you have to do is the show, mm-hmm. I did start working out, and I started working out a lot, and my body totally changed, and I found myself becoming more um, confident in my body. Not so much. I mean. Not a lot changed inside except for the confidence level, but my, I still had my insecurities. You know, a lot of my self, I always say my self-esteem was in my biceps, and it, but it did give me more confidence. I started to explore my sexuality across the country on tour, um, and um, it just, and I felt better about myself. I just felt better about myself. It, in a way, it was as simple as that. Um, I started, you know, wearing, you know, tank tops and little shorts and just kind of celebrating what was happening to me physically. Um, I always say I'm a, I'm a give credit where credit is due guy. So I'm like, yeah, if I'm building up my body, I'm going to show it. <laughs> so I did. Um, and that just, uh, I, I did, it did change. I mean, I still had insecurity issues. But there was one element of my existence, my body, my physicality, that it really did feel good to kind of become the physical guy that I always was attracted to. Um, does that sound kind of small-minded? Maybe. But that's what I was going through at the time. That's I needed a, to do it. It's interesting you bring up small-minded because there's another part in, the, in that uh, there's, a, there's sort of a, a couple lines in that part of the book where you, where you describe what, what you look like at that point. Uh, you, you start working out, you look masculine, you describe yourself as really hot, as you say, and, and, and somebody that you'd fuck in a second. Um, mm-hmm. But then the next sentence, you, you say that um, writing that out now, you're still ashamed of that. I, it's not so much that I'm ashamed. It's just that I'm very aware of how people... Um, uh, perceive guys who, you know, were kind of into their bodies. And I'm just being honest that when I, we talk about that Halloween when I dressed up as a leather guy and it was very, uh, you know, I was wearing a harness and, and I just felt so masculine and sexual. And yeah, when I looked in the mirror, I was like, I would fuck that person. <laughs> Which I think if you read that, you'd kind of go like, oh, well, that's, that sounds kind of awful. And I say that in the book. I say that's what I say. You know, that's how I felt back then. I'm just being honest. Take it. You know, is it is it is it pleasant to read? Probably not. But that's how I felt. I'm pretty brutally honest in this book. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I need to go beyond the body, and that's what a lot from, from that point on in the book. There's a lot of that journey where the mind and my self-esteem have to catch up with what I was doing with my body. Do you think at, any, at uh, say, that point in your life or in, in, in that period of your life that you conflated love with sex? Um, that's a really good question. I think there was an element of that where sometimes I would meet somebody that I was, like, wildly attracted to and thought that I was falling in love with them, even if they could be total assholes, you know, just kind of full of themselves or whatever. Um, I, I think that, yeah. I would probably say there was some confusion between that. And it was actually, well, we are probably going to get on the subject of working as an escort, where I kind of was able to sort that all out a little bit because 
the guys that I worked with, the guys who were my clients, were not body guys. They were not, like, beautifully built and handsome. But there was something about each of them that made me attracted to them, sense of humor or, um, you know, emotion, just kind of an emotional connection. Uh, sometimes I had to be the caretaker because they were they were calling me to have sex with me because someone died in their family and they needed some comfort. There were so many reasons why people called me as an escort, and it made me look at them, at men in general, differently. It, it taught me to go deeper, and it, that changed my life. That's where I was starting to really understand what love is and not just that kind of, either the teenage girl kind, kind of love, ooh, he's so cute, or the what I was going through, I was like, he's really hot, I think I could love that guy. Yeah, I needed to get beyond that. And then something that you contend with um, uh, in in the book is the idea of looking for love or or, or that lasting love, if you will. I mean, you you have friends who are in in long-lasting relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not something that's come your way. And I'm wondering, uh, because you mentioned this about work a moment ago, um, the escorting, the the work in in the sex trade, um, that's probably had an effect on, on your professional career. Um, in terms of, say, finding love now, um, do, do you think that might have an effect as well? The it cer- certainly did, it certainly did with, with one uh, specific relationship with Reed, didn't it? Right. That, and because Reed came along just like the wrong time. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, but in, in exploring that relationship, and kind of leaving escorting for him, it would have been great if he could have let go the fact that I had been an escort, but he couldn't. And, you know, it, it, that stereotype of, like, once a hooker, always a hooker, it's just not true. I mean, everybody has a different experience, and when I was with him, I was with him. But that wasn't good enough, and he never let it go, and it was doomed from the beginning. And after that, that was my first major attempt at a relationship. It's the longest one I ever had. Mm-hmm. And since then, I really was like, Ugh, if anybody talks to me the way he talked to me, I, I do not want to be involved in a relationship like that, ever. So I hadn't for a really long time. And then there were things like, you know, when you're, when you're not making enough money, sometimes it's really hard to date. And so for whatever reason, I stayed single for many, many years and, and have been single to this day. But I just don't know that I'm that guy. I don't know if I'm the one. You know, I like my my privacy. I like my time alone. Um, I'm hoping, you know, that the right person will come along, but not somebody like Reed who will take my history and throw it in my face. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Because I can't change my history. I'm not, I have no shame in my history. I'm. And look, I love my book. I really do. And I love hearing when somebody like you says, I related to what's in there, even though I didn't have the experience. And I could not have written this book had I not gone through everything that I went through before this. You know, mm. my all of my experience led me to this day where I have something to say about the subject matter in this book. So I have no regrets, and I don't care what anybody thinks of me. You know, call me trash, call me literary, call me anything, you know. I, it doesn't matter to me anymore. I... I use my experiences to tell stories, and that feels great. Do you, in a way, this is the, the sort of book that you wish you had growing up, didn't you? 
Oh, my God. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when I read um, David Copay's book, which is the first, I think it's the first biography I ever read um, of the ex-NFL player who came out, that was like, oh, my God, this famous guy and all the secrets that he had. And, I mean, I read it so long ago that I can't go into detail, but I remember it had an effect on me because there was no... There just wasn't a lot of, lit, there was literature about being gay, but it was, you know, from 200 years ago. And it wasn't really about being gay. So I wasn't, I wasn't finding myself in any of this media. And I think it would have made a difference. Like it makes a difference for kids these days when they turn on Will and Grace or, you know, or Euphoria or whatever. It does make a difference to see yourself in the media because we are so such a media-driven society. And, you know, I, I, I hope that if, you know, people read this, whether, you know, however old they are, that they do feel a little better about themselves, that they judge themselves less, that they, you know, feel like they can be more authentic and not feel shameful about it, whether it's sex or what they choose to do with a living or as a, you know, a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, um, it just, it hurts my heart that we're still going through this stuff. Uh, I'm doing my part, you know, I'm doing what I can to maybe go um, read this. You'll hopefully feel better about yourself afterwards. David, what is it like to write a memoir for, for, from memory, as it were? I mean, there's a part in the book where you're talking about um, meeting, I hope I pronounce it, Kalani. Yes, and 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 so so you you have to write from memory. Um, yeah. In terms of relying on it, because that's a fascinating story of itself about uh, you you uh, tr- trying to remember certain details and then having to check with someone else. I mean, th- there is a certain amount of research that one does, but in in terms of of relying on your memory to to, to write a book like this, um, how did you find that experience? Well, I always think of myself as having a really crappy memory. You know, people will be like, David, remember when we ate at that place two weeks ago? And I'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, you know, my, my, my nearby history is just not there. However, when I sat down, you know, to, to write this book, I would go, I would go every morning to this coffee place at 6.30, put on my little beanie hat and some jeans, and I would sit and write. And there's something about getting lost in, you know, staring at the computer and having life going on around you, which is why I don't love working at home, mm-hmm. that makes me kind of focus, and it would make me go, like, as I was writing, and I would maybe write from kind of a very uh, skin-deep part of the story, but then I would hit a word, and I'd go, oh, wait a second, that happened. Oh, my God. And it would be like this emotional thing where, you know, I remember a conversation we had, or I remember something somewhere where I really screwed up and... and you know, and had to take the consequences for it. And I totally forgot about that. It was, it was really about being deep into the story with my fingers on the keyboard that jogged a lot of what I needed for this book. Um, and so, yeah, I had found out that my memory, I mean, there's still certain things that, like my best friend Andy, who I talk about in the book, mm-hmm. um, he'll say to me, do you remember so-and-so, you know what? And I'd be like, yes, that was great. I should have put that in the book. But it wasn't in my head at the time, you know. Yeah. Um, but everything is told through the lens of body shame and sexuality in this book, um, pretty much almost everything. And so, you know, my editor, Scott Sellers, who is the best person in the world, um, 
he really encouraged me to kind of keep the themes strong and try and stay focused on why I am telling this story here. And that also helped me to kind of, you know, shape it and, and keep the, the details really specific. And, and that helped to jog my memory as well. It was actually a great process, the writing and the rewriting. Yeah. I loved it. It, it, the book is very hopeful by the by the end of it, and um, but you do wonder about um, the future. Um, you, as, as you mentioned, you're in your early 60s now. Um, you know, when you talk about um, the stigma of um, growing older, I found that fascinating. Um, there, there's still a, a great deal of ageism in our culture and our society. Um, yeah. in, in terms of, of, of your happiness... Um, being tied to, to how you are physically. Um, how do you think you'll, you'll, you'll go into this third act in terms of, of life itself? I mean, you know, the aging is, is, is tough for everybody. Yeah. Um, what are you not looking forward to, say? Well, look, I, they say, you know, you have your health, you have everything. Believe me, I agree with that a thousand percent. So I do everything I can to stay healthy. Now, as I get older, things will creep in, and who knows who knows what what lies ahead of me. And I don't honestly, I don't know how I'll deal with it. I really don't. But that's part of the the mystery of the future. I hope that I can bring the same kind of um, uh, positive energy and um, you know search for, for asking questions and staying creative and staying. Uh, curious, because I think that's what keeps you young, you know, keeping you um, involved. I hope that I'll continue to do that. Uh, I can't say for sure that I will, because who knows? But, you know, getting older, it's tough. But look at the surprise. I'm 63 years old, and I wrote a book. Mm. Surprise! Mm. <laughs> yeah, who knows? I, I, I've always been somebody who has been open to... If there's either an opportunity or I have an idea, I pursue it. And over, as you've seen in the book, there, there are just these eras where I kind of do something that I've never done before, and I explore it. So hopefully I have a lot more of those ahead of me. I want to travel more. I would like a boyfriend. I would love a long-term boyfriend. Hasn't been in the cards so far. Who knows? I'm open. I'm really, I'm strangely open to so much right now. And I thought that as I got older, I would want to close myself off more. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. Because that's what happens usually. But I don't want to be that guy. But we'll see. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's what, ma hope. that's what makes a book such a, an enjoyable read. It's a, it's a fun read. It's often uh, uh, dirty and, and fun in that, in that way. Um, but but it's um, it, it ends on a hopeful note because you're a hopeful guy, and uh, so all the best not just with, with the success of the book but but life itself. Uh, I appreciate your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, it was lovely speaking to you too. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. The uh, Instagram account is at d pevs. That's d p e v s. The book is called Damn Shame, A Memoir of Desire, Defiance, and Show Tunes. It's published by Random House. It's author David Pevsner. Join me on the line from Los Angeles in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Flanta.